All right, we're looking at Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 25. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. All men are like grass, and all of man's glory is like the flower of the fields. And the grass withers, and the flowers fade away. But the Word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us before we consider it further tonight. Heavenly Father, as we, as we do every week, we stop and we ask You to be here with us. Because we, we need to hear from You. And to hear from you, we need you to work. Father, we confess that in and of ourselves, we are not blank slates. Uh, we do not come to your word um, in, our, in our natural state. We do not come um, open, but rather we are naturally bent against it. And so, Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you will open us up to hear and understand what you have uh, to tell us. That we might see, um, see something of ourselves and our sin, and more importantly, something of you and your grace and your mercy. And Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So it depends on which resources or websites or whatever that you look at uh, as to whether uh, your age um, falls into Generation Y slash Millennials. Or if you're at the beginning of Generation Z, also known as the Centennials or the I generation, evidently. But even if you're not, you know, it depends on how you fall and those sorts of things. But even if you're not technically a millennial, I think, you know, close enough. Uh, I'm on the, on the edge of the Gen X, uh, I guess, what, millennial? and So I'm going to go Gen Xer. But... Uh, one thing that you hear a lot about in regard to the millennials 
um, so, you know, you, and in some ways really our whole culture, is that, that you're very much concerned with authenticity. That being authentic is a, is a really big deal. Uh, we, you, we value, we value people being real, right? Not being fake. I think it's really easy to see in, in marketing because um, millennials are typically not really interested in commercials, especially the, the bigger, the flashier the commercial, the least interested you tend to be because you, you don't pay much attention to those things typically because you assume that, that they're being fake to some degree, right? Everybody's product looks good on TV. Of course it does. It's their commercial. But what's it really like in real life, right? We value authenticity. And when you don't find it, when you find a lack of authenticity, uh, we really react negatively to that, right? And I think uh, there's a sense in which we can say that Jesus is very big on authenticity also. I think he, in some ways, would very much identify with that millennial, that aspect of being a millennial. Uh, And I think that's what our uh, passage really focuses on tonight. Our passage is really about authenticity. And what we see, when Jesus finds a lack of it, he really doesn't like it. We could also talk about it as hypocrisy. And so this semester, you know that um, we're studying through this Gospel of Mark, and our theme every week is wide-eyed wonder. Because that's the way Mark writes his Gospel. He writes, uh, you get the impression that he's almost like He's almost like a little kid that wants to tell you or show you something that they're just in love with. And his eyes are bugging out of his head. That's the way Mark's gospel reads. It's really fast and action-packed. And tonight, what we're going um, to see, I want, I want to see three things about Jesus and how he feels about, uh, I guess we could say, Authenticity. How he feels about a lack of authenticity, really. So we're going to look at that in three ways. First thing we're going to see is the general problem, verses 12 to 14. Secondly, we'll narrow the focus and see the specific problem. Thirdly and finally, we'll look at the solution. All right, so first, the general problem. And again, we see that in verses 12 to 14. All right, look, as we dig in here tonight... I think we have to say that this is, this is a really odd passage uh, in a lot of ways. There are a lot of questions about it. There's a lot of confusing things, I think. And we're not going to, uh, we're not going to answer all of them. I don't think I can. But I do think that we can bring some clarity to this and try to, I think we can come to some, some good understanding of what, what's really going on in this passage. And one of the first things we have to understand is our context, right? What's going on here? What's the, where, where are we? All right, so Jesus is coming into Jerusalem um, for what, what's going to be the last week of his life. And it's, it's Passover, right? Um, Passover is when all the Jews from really the, the whole known world, they would all come for one week of, the, of every year. And they would come to Jerusalem to, uh, to worship and celebrate uh, God leading his people, Israel, out of Egypt hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before. 
So it's this huge event. Untold, just hundreds of thousands of people flock to this town. And it's this big event that centers around the worship of God. And so Jesus and his disciples are staying just outside of Jerusalem in this little village uh, called Bethany. And so they come into Jerusalem each morning, and they spend the day there, and then they go back each night. And so the story that we read, it really has three scenes. Uh, the, the first scene is the, the fig tree scene on the way into Jerusalem uh, this first morning. The second is what Jesus does at the temple when he drives out the money changers and what, whatnot. And then the third is the fig tree scene on the way into Jerusalem the next morning. All right, so let's take a look at the first scene. So what happens in the first scene? So they're walking along. It's early in the morning, heading into Jerusalem, and Jesus is hungry. Right? We get this great glimpse of the fact that Jesus, even though he's God, he, he, he's a real person. He's hungry, just like you would be, just like I would be. And he sees this fig tree off of, you know, a little ways, and it's got leaves all over it. And so Jesus goes to check it out and get some figs off of it, grab some breakfast. And so he goes over there uh, expecting to find something, even though he knows, because Mark tells us, it's not the season for figs, but, uh, but this tree is evidencing the fact that it, it should have them. Right? It's got all these leaves, uh, and, and that would be an indication of the fact that it, it does have figs on it. And if not the regular season figs, at least the, um, apparently they grow these little smaller bulb-like figs uh, beforehand. So basically this tree is advertising that there's every reason to think that there are going to be figs on it. And so Jesus goes over there. And what he finds is that despite its advertising that, there's no fruit. There's nothing there. And so he pronounces judgment on it. Um, last night I thought about this passage because uh, it, uh, when we were, we were out trick-or-treating with our, you know, we were taking our kids trick-or-treating. Amy and I weren't trick-or-treating, but taking our kids trick-or-treating and there was one house in our, in our neighborhood and you know the rule, right? If it's all about the front porch, the lights by the door, and if those are on, open for business, right? Come knock on the door. If not, you pass. And this house had the lights on and everything about it said like, come on. And the kids knock and knock and nothing, right? So that's kind of the idea, right? You get the, you get the illustration. Jesus is, has every reason to think this is going to have figs on it, and it doesn't. And so Jesus does this seemingly very odd thing and pronounces judgment on it. So what's that all about? Because people have seemed to have a lot of trouble about this over the last 2,000 years. You know, why would Jesus do that to this poor tree and that sort of stuff? It seems so random. But I want you to see that it's actually very purposeful. That Jesus is not just doing this. He's not just ticked that it didn't have, you know, I walked all the way over here and it doesn't have figs, so zap. That's not what's going on. It's very purposeful. And Mark is showing us that it's purposeful. Um, look, one reason, and, uh, one reason is that the fig tree is frequently used in the Old Testament as a picture of, as, as symbolic of Israel, of God's people. You can see it in Hosea 9, Micah 7, Jeremiah 8, Jeremiah 29. So very often the fig tree is used to represent Israel. But 
I think one of the main things that I want you to see is that Mark's structure, the way he's, the way he's written this and the way it happened, is showing us that this is very purposeful. Um, they're intentional. He's intentionally connected these stories. I mean, Jesus did this intentionally, and Mark is showing that to us, right? Um, the fig tree, this whole incident with the fig tree, is supposed to be this, I guess you could say, like living illustration of what he's going to do in the temple. Does that make sense? That what's going on here with the fig tree is like this parable. It's like this living illustration of what the scene that unfolds in the temple that seems really odd. So what is that? What's going on? Well, And look, we don't know if the disciples necessarily understood it right then at that time or not, but eventually they did. So look, what's the general problem? The general problem, of course, is this fig tree says, look, I'm fruitful. I have fruit. You can come get some. But it, it didn't. It promised, but it didn't deliver. It was, it was inauthentic, right? It was fake. Um, and what, what Jesus, there, there's no substance behind it. And that's exactly what Jesus is going to find in, in the temple. There seems to be this, uh, this flurry, this abundance of real religious activity. And it seems to promise there's a lot of deep spiritual things going on here. But it's... It's fake. It's just not real. It's not authentic. And so Jesus brings judgment and he gets rid of the inauthentic. That's what's going on. And that's what he's doing in the temple. There's a lot of religious activity, but it's fake. It's empty. So that's the general idea. And now let's narrow in and the scope in and see the specific problems. Uh, verses 15 and 19. And look, let me just tell you on the front end of this point, this gets a little technical and nerdy, but I think if you hang with me, uh, I think it'll pay off, if that makes sense. So I get it, it's going to be a little detailed, but it's good stuff. Um, all right, so the second scene, what happens? Well, Jesus shows up in the temple, and he basically just, it seems like immediately just starts going off, right? Um, there are no doubt plenty of, of wide-eyed people uh, at that moment. Um, verse 15, what does it say? He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. It says he wouldn't let anybody pass through carrying anything. He was telling them that the temple was supposed to be a house of prayer for the nations, and they had made it a den of robbers. All kind of stuff. So what's going on? What's all that about? Well, look, remember, like we've said, this is a huge event in the life of the Jewish people. This is supposed to be this um, amazing and rich celebration, uh, this rich worship of God, of how he, had, how he had graciously saved his people. And they're responding in, in love and worship and praise of, of God. Um, but and so that's what they see as they walk up right as you walk up you see all kinds of people that are filling the temple and it seems so rich but as they get closer right it looks like a fig tree with leaves all over it but when they get closer Jesus sees what's really going on 
and he sees there's no fruit. All right, so what is he seeing? Um, he sees buying and selling in the temple. So what's that all about? All right, well, in the Old Testament, this was actually um, prescribed by God that you would come and you would bring a sacrifice. Everybody would bring a sacrifice. So if you've traveled from, you know, days and days away, it may not be easy for you to bring a sacrifice, you know, bring animals with you. Um, and you're, you know, God's very clear. It's supposed to be an animal without any defect or blemish. And so uh, basically they would allow for that. Uh, they would, you could show up in Jerusalem and buy one, buy a sacrifice. Uh, it was basically a, a, a convenience. But what typically happens with uh, things of convenience, right? People tend to take advantage of that, right? Think about when you go to the, when you go to the football game, you buy a uh, bottle of water that costs about, what, 30 cents, and a bag of popcorn or hot dog or whatever that would cost another, you know, 40 cents, and you spend what, like $11 on it, right? right? I mean, you get that, right? Like, they're totally taking advantage of you, right? You're willing to pay it, it's fine. Well, that's what's going on here in the temple. Uh, they're taking advantage of these, uh, of these worshipers of God, right? Well, if you'll pay, you know, make up the night, if you'll pay $5 for a calf so you don't have to tote one, well, you'd pay 50 And that's what Jesus sees. The same is true of the money changers. God required a temple tax to be paid, but it had to be paid in the, uh, in the local currency. And so you'd have to exchange your money and they were capitalizing on that too. Uh, verse 16, right? People were passing through. Evidently, the temple was uh, being used sort of just as a shortcut, as a quick way to get out of the city, get from here to there. And so people are just running through. And on top of all of this, it was all happening in the court of the Gentiles. All this money changing and selling of things is in the court of the Gentiles. Now, what in the world is that? Look, the temple had a very specific arrangement. This is the way God mandated it. But in the temple, in the very center was the Holy of Holies, where God's presence, where the ark was, right? Only the high priest would go in there. And then just outside of that, you had the priest's court, where only the priest could go. Uh, Then just outside of that, you had Israel's court, which was only the, um, the Hebrew men. And then just outside of that, you had the, uh, the court of women, the women's court. And then on the outside, the last sort of layer of the temple was the court of the Gentiles. And that's where the, uh, the outsiders, right, the Gentiles, right, I mean, the non-Jews were allowed to come. They were allowed to come there, but they weren't allowed to go any further in. But they were actually invited to come there. That was God's intention, God's design all along was that Israel would be a blessing to the nations. And he designs his temple with this space where the outsider can come and worship him. But what Jesus sees in the temple is that all of this religious big business has crowded them out. Basically, they're looking like, all right, where can we set up shop? Well, we don't want to mess up our space. Let's just do it where, you know, those people are supposed to be. It was... It was just obvious that they had no concern for the outsider. No concern for anybody that wasn't like them. So what Jesus says in verse 17, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? That comes from Isaiah 56, verse 7. And in that whole section of Isaiah, God's actually talking about how He welcomes in the outsider. 
how he wants them and invites them to come in and worship him. And so when Jesus sees the opposite, it brings out his judgment. And then real quickly, one more aspect of what Jesus finds that he's so upset with. It's actually the second part of what he says in 17. But you have made it a den of robbers. That comes from Jeremiah 7, verse 11. And basically in that passage, God is rebuking his people and warning his people that not only are they engaged in all these sins, like worshiping Baal and and doing all sorts of heinous stuff, but they think they're safe from God's judgment because of their religious activity. Because they show up at the temple and and just sort of do the deal. And so we don't have time to read it, but... um, uh, yeah, what was it, Jeremiah 7, he basically says, look, don't trust in these deceptive words, uh, the, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So you get the idea. They were, they were basically thinking, like, we can do whatever we want to. And, we, I mean, we, you know, we go to temple all the time, or we worship, we do our sacrifices. And God's trying to, uh, he says, you have made my house into a den of robbers. All right, so look, I told you it was going to get kind of technical, but so there's all that religious activity going on and it was all empty. There's no real love for God. No true worship or in no concern for others. And on top of it all, they seem to think that it was all okay because it was religious stuff. Alright, so what do we do with that? How does that matter to us? Look, I think if we're honest, I think we can see a lot of ourselves in that. If you take a moment and reflect on it. Um, I think it serves as a warning to us to, to examine ourselves. Um, yeah, to, to take a minute and to look and see, take stock of our, our, our spirituality. What's it really about? Right? And are, we just, are we just nominal or, you know, in name only Christians? Um, And look, I think especially at a place like where we are, right? We're at Baylor. We're at a Christian school. Um, What do we say? It's like the biggest, we say biggest Christian school, biggest Baptist school. I don't know, right? But whatever the, however we talk about it. Um, I think this has, gosh, I think we especially need to be reflective about that, about this. And look, if, if you're right now, if you're thinking, man, I'm so glad he's preaching about this because, because those people really need to hear this, right? If, if you're thinking that, I want you to, I'm talking to you, okay? If you have that thought like, man, I know people that need to hear this because they are, then this is for you, okay? Um, this passage is like a, it's like a neon sign saying to us, saying, look, just because you go to RUF or you go to church and you don't miss a week, um, just because you read your Bible every day, and just because you, um, you go to Bible study, just because your dad's an elder, just because you got baptized, just because you take communion, just because whatever religious thing, that in and of itself does not mean you're a Christian. And now look, we've got to be real careful here. And I think as we continue to talk in these last few minutes, we're, we're going we're gonna to make some sense of this. But I want to be real careful. And if, look, if we, 
If you have questions, come talk to me about it. But those things don't make you a Christian. Right? What about your heart? What, what about your worship? Right? It's a question of what do you really love? Do you love God? Or is it all, is it just religious uh, activity that's empty? Let me give you a few diagnostic questions um, that I think come from what we've seen here. Number one, what's your religious activity for? The things that you do. Going to church, reading your Bible, whatever it is. Why do you do that? Take some time and honestly, honestly reflect. Do you, do you do it to make yourself just feel a little better? Do you do it to try to leverage God so that He'll be kind to you, so that He'll give you whatever? Um, do you do it to try to put, you know, put some uh, points in the good column to kind of balance out the bad column? Or, or do you do it because you truly have a love for God? Now, the second one, how do you treat other people? Are other people just a means to an end for you? Is your relationship with others all about what they can do for you? And then this one's very similar, but how do, you, how do you feel about the outsider? About the person that's different from you? And then look, that could be, that could be anything. That could be a different race. It can be a different gender. It can be a different major. It can be anything. The, the person that's in the fraternity or those that aren't. The homeschoolers or the public schoolers. The, whatever your other people, how do you feel about those people? Are you indifferent to them? Uh, do you, or do you tolerate them? Or do you seek them out? Do you make room for them? Is your life a place where the outsider feels welcome? Is our RUF a place where the outsider feels welcome? Because the authentic believer knows, knows that they were the outsider to God. And he sought them out. And, and therefore wants to do the same for others. All right. That's hard stuff. So let's take a look at our third point. Let's look at the solution. Verses 20 to 25. So this is the third scene. Uh, and it's Jesus and the disciples are heading back the next day. They're heading back to Jerusalem. And so they pass by the fig tree. And Peter remembers what happens when he sees the fig tree. Verse 21, he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. And Jesus says, have faith in God. And then he talks about how when you pray, if you believe God will grant what you ask, um, uh, and then you'll receive it. And then you'll be able to tell the mountains to move to the sea and it will happen. And, you know, so what's all that about? Because that's a really odd ending to the story, I think it seems like, right? And it it does bookend sort of the temple account with the fig tree, the structure we were talking about. But if you notice, Jesus' point about the fig tree wasn't about false religion or about Israel being judged, but it was about prayer. So how does that make sense? And look, I have to say, honestly, I'm not completely sure, but I think we can make, I think we can make some sense of it. 
Look, if you're really tracking with what Jesus has been teaching, I think in some ways this is sort of a scary passage, right? It should at least be unsettling to us. And I think what Jesus is doing here is giving us good news. Good news, where is it? I think this is exactly what you would want to hear if you found yourself thinking, oh no, that's me. I'm the inauthentic or unauthentic, whatever. I'm the hypocrite. I'm not an authentic believer, at least not like I would want to be. So how is it good news? Well, first, look at verse 22. What does Jesus say? He says, have faith in God. It's so simple, right? Don't put, Jesus is saying, look, don't put your faith in certainly anything else, right? Your, um, in your money, your possessions, your family, your grades, your whatever. And don't put your faith in your religious activity. Don't, don't put what you trust in. You can't trust in the fact that you read your Bible all the time. Or you never miss RUF. Or you evangelize all the time. Or, or whatever. Because those things can't save you. And in fact, you should, in some sense, repent of how we do those things. Even, those, even the best things. We should repent of those things and run to Jesus because those things can't save us, but Jesus is what saves us, right? This goes back to what we talked about last week or the week before, and every week, hopefully. Because Christianity is all about the good news that, what, that God has done something for you that you can't do for yourself. That your religious activity, it, it doesn't merit you anything. But the good news is that Jesus has earned you every merit you could imagine. Have faith in Him. Look, I can, I can vividly remember um, my first job in ministry, I mean, right out of college. And, I mean, this was like one particular afternoon, afternoon, I'm in my office and start thinking about, you know, this and that. And then I start getting really sort of panicked because I start to realize that, gosh, I think a huge part of the reason that I am a Christian is not because I love God. I think it's really just because Christianity gives me this um, sort of system to understand the world and understand people and myself. And right? I just like the way that it sort of made sense of things. So really, it was just sort of selfish. And on top of that, I'm not really in ministry because I love God and I love people. But I think a huge part of the reason why I'm in ministry is because I just want to be the answer man. I want to learn all the things that, you know, that I can about it. And then I want people to ask me and I know about it. And so... Uh, I can remember I called my campus minister and, uh, and ended up in his office and I'm telling him all this and like having this, you know, sort of crisis. And he listens and, and he's just in some ways in, in a very pastoral kind of way, somewhat indifferent. And he's like, yeah, okay. And he says, so yeah, that, all that's true, what you said. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's the problem. And he says, so, okay, so what do you do? I was like, I don't know, man. So I came to your office. And he said, look, the, he said, the, the good news, what you do, what do you do with anything else? You, you repent of that. You, you go to Jesus with that. Right? You go to Jesus with the fact that I just, 
I really just kind of like all this and love all this. So much of, of my faith is because it makes sense of the world. And I need you to save me. Right? I believe, but help my unbelief. All right, quickly, secondly, as we wind up, uh, there's more good news. And it's this part about prayer. What's all this about, right? It's kind of weird that um, God, I mean, Jesus says, you know, if you, if you ask for anything and you believe enough, he'll do it, right? But look, what I want to suggest to you is that this is not about you, us praying, you know, to win the lottery or a new car or whatever. If you believe it, he sort of has to do it. I think what Jesus is showing us is that right, have faith in God and God can do the impossible, right? That's the idea of, of mountains moving into the sea. Um, because what did the fig tree represent, right? Peter's astounded at the fact, like, wait, you just, you cursed that fig tree and it happened, right? Like, wow. It's kind of interesting that they're still amazed at this stuff, right? Um, but the fig tree, right, we're saying represents Israel and the, the inauthentic. And so what, I think what Jesus is showing us is that God can do the impossible. Like, yeah, that, that's just a withered fig tree. But you know what God can do? God can take trust in God. Pray to Him. Because He can, he can do the impossible. He can take what's inauthentic in you and, and, and wither it up. He can, make it, he can make it shrivel and go away. Do you get that? that wow, God, God withered that fig tree. He could do that in me. He could clean up the parts of me that don't love like they should. He can clean up and wither away the parts of me that, that don't embrace the outsider. That don't love God like they should. Because God can do the impossible. And that's the good news that's offered to us. That we can, we can actually admit how hollow all our religious activity is. How, how loveless our hearts can be. And we, we can turn to God and trust Him in faith because of what Jesus has done. Because it was never that religious activity that saved you in the first place. And it's not going to be what keeps, keeps you saved. It's still nothing with the blood, right? That's the good news. And you can trust him because he's already accomplished it by dying on a cross. And he invites, he invites you even tonight to come and to come, just come to him just as you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you would love us like that, that you would accomplish an amazing salvation. Forgive us for our for our hypocrisy. Would you change us? Would you convict us of that? And in our conviction, would we turn to you? Not turn to trying harder, but turn to you in Christ. Father, we pray that in his name. Amen.